And I think that's the hard thing for successful weight loss programs is that it's really about the pet owner more than the pet, right? Because they're the ones who control the food. So weight loss plans really need to be tailored to the household. A whole new era of communication in the pet food industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds in the global pet food industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. Welcome to the Pet Food Science Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and all that's working in the pet food industry. Hi, Dr. Alms. This is this is the podcast that we were talking about, and I'm so pleased to have our conversation today. I'm hoping to get to know you a little better and to hear about uh, about pet nutrition from your perspective. I wonder if you could start. Can you give us just a little background? And I know you're at the University of Tennessee and and, and you've done uh, a number of things. But could you tell us first about that? Sure. Um, I always tell people I'm a lifer of the University of Tennessee because I actually grew up about two miles from the campus. And I was at Tennessee for my undergraduate, and then I went to vet school there. And then I was in private practice for a couple of years. And then I came back to the University of Tennessee to do my PhD and my nutrition residency. And then I just stayed on as faculty ever since. So it's where I've done all my training. Um, it is my hometown. And yeah, so that's, that's pretty much my background right there. And tell me about your current work. You, you have a group of people you're working with who are, who are sort of uh, your, your people you work mostly with there at Tennessee. Yeah, I have another nutritionist that works with me, Dr. Marianne Murphy, and um, we're kind of joined at the hip. We always tell people we're a little bit of a package deal at this point because um, we're also very good friends. Um, but Dr. Murphy and I collaborate on all our research together, and then we also train residents. So right now we have, um, depending on how you want to classify them between our alternative and our traditional residents, but we have two to three residents that we're training right now as well. So in the residence program, they always, they're responsible for a research project. In fact, I think it's required that they have a, a published research project to, to get to be a diplomat. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah. They, we have them do an original research project and then to actually finish getting their board certification in nutrition, they have to have that published or a, a paper published. So, so can you tell us a little bit about, you know, currently what projects are very exciting in your lab today? And, and then we'll look, we'll look back at maybe some of the things that you've done in the past. Sure. Well, we've got a strong focus right now on pet obesity. Uh-huh. And so we have a obesity center that is, um, funded through Royal Canaan, and it is free for pet owners to bring their dogs and cats to our Center for Obesity Treatment. And from there, we're able to do some research projects. So one of my residents is looking at um, using falciform fat on a lateral radiograph as a way to estimate body fat in cats. Um, we're also looking at some things about pet owner motivation for weight loss programs with my other resident. And then we've got, you know, lots of projects, but they're mostly targeting, you know, clinically relevant ways to make obesity treatment easier, better, um, you know, ways that we can really kind of combat that. And then 
We also do quite a bit in terms of gastrointestinal disease management with nutrition. So we also have a couple projects where we're looking at that as well. You know, obesity is just such a huge problem for people as well as pets, isn't it? I, I know that that's an area of expertise for you. And I, I wonder if you, if you just might think a little bit about us. You, you've written about it. And I wonder, you know, as someone looks at their pet, how do they even know that they're obese? What, what maybe we start there? Yeah, I think it's difficult because so many pets are overweight that we we now kind of have a skewed view of what they're supposed to look like, especially when it comes to cats. Um, most of our indoor cats are already overweight, even if we think they're at a good spot. Um, so starting with cats, I do I like to focus in on looking at them from above when they walk around the house. And if you look at your cat from above, if they have a little bit of an hourglass coming in behind their ribs, they're probably in pretty good shape. Like if you got that just like little bit of an indentation when the ribs right past them, that's a good spot. Now, when they start to look like a straight tube and, you know, they're like, well, they're pretty much straight from their chest all the way back to their hips. That's when they're starting to be just a little bit overweight and then it goes up from there, right? And then we start to get the bellies that expand and things like that. Yeah. Um, for dogs, you know, I think it's kind of, again, we're looking for them to have that hourglass when you look at them from above. From the side, they should have their waist go up from their chest. Like it should okay. tuck up. Things like that are ways to tell. And, you know, really, if you look at what your dog or cat look like when they're about a year old, or a year and a half oh, old. Let's not go there. Well, <laughs> you know, typically, for most of the time, you know, they're probably sitting in pretty good shape right when they reach adulthood. Not always, um, but that can also be a good marker for you to say, "Oh, that's what my dog or cat's supposed to weigh or supposed so the to ideal. Like. Yeah. But, yeah, especially with dogs. I mean, I think they don't they continue to grow lean mass after a year, or really have lean yeah. mass. And it depends on the breed, of course, right? You know, if we're looking at a Great Dane, well, they're definitely not done when they're a year old. But, you know, a Chihuahua, yeah, they're going to be pretty well filled out by a year. So it is a little bit of breed dependent. But, you know, once they've hit their full growth, it's a good idea to kind of track in your head. That's where they're probably supposed to sit because they'll start to put on the weight gradually over the next few years till they hit middle age often. And then... You know, in our, in my experience, the middle-aged pet seems to actually be perhaps the heaviest, and sometimes they tend to lose weight uh, as the as age goes on. Is that is that your experience, or do you see? Because I, I know mostly no lab pets are, are pets that are are very well watched over by, with veterinary care, and and maybe have a little more intervention than than uh, the average pet. But what about in the, in the real world? Yeah, yeah, we definitely see that. And research studies have also shown that too, where it is definitely a kind of a curve where mm-hmm. they'll be the leanest when they're really young and they start to lose the weight again when they hit the geriatric years. Um, it's like people. We often see geriatric humans start to lose weight, lose muscle yes. mass, go into some of that sarcopenia. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the it mimics problem, that. isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's that that struggle I have as a nutritionist with my geriatric patients of maintaining their weight, maintaining their lean mass, but then when they're in the middle age, is trying to manage the obesity aspect. 
Talk to me a little bit, if you would, and of course, I think people are interested in it. Is it a problem? I mean, I have this this pet. They seem happy. They like to eat. I like to feed them. Um, it, is low obesity really a problem for them? I kind of know the answer, but I want to talk to you. I want to talk to you about it. Yeah, I mean, they can be kind of cute, right? But it is going to shorten their lifespan. So there was a seminal study done in Labrador puppies where they followed them out their entire lives. And these dogs were paired up when they were puppies into being like a very lean group versus a really just mildly overweight group. They weren't obese. They were just a little overweight. Well, and they the dogs to their food too. Exactly, <laughs> right? They weren't allowed to eat everything. Yeah. yeah. Even that difference, that small difference in their body condition, the ones that were leaner lived on average roughly about two years longer than the ones that were overweight. And a lot of that has to do with orthopedic disease is extremely um, subject to having that excess weight. So our patients that are obese, they have more orthopedic disease, more pain as they get older. So they may do okay when they're younger, especially if they're just kind of a little overweight, but it really starts to hit them in those older years, which leads to earlier euthanasias. Um, other things with being overweight is it's actually very difficult for a veterinarian to do a good physical exam oh, on an obese patient. Yeah. So it's going to be hard to pick up cancers and masses. It's hard to palpate that liver to know it's enlarged. So you just start to lose a little bit of your diagnostic ability. Um, they're at higher risk for anesthesia. You know, you don't really want to anesthetize those obese guys. And skin disease is more common, especially in cats. They can't groom themselves as well. So a whole host of problems, sure. plus the systemic inflammation that's there with obesity that may contribute to a lot of other disease processes. Yes, yeah. yeah. Seems like fighting that that overactive inflammation is just a huge component of of aging, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. Tell, tell us about things we might do. You know, you're, you've written about it, and you're, it's your area of research. And, and it's just more than calories. It's not less than calories in, calories out. Let's do that foundationally. Second law of thermodynamics, still true. But it's more than that, isn't it? Yeah, and I think that's the hard thing for successful weight loss programs is that it's really about the pet owner more than the pet, right? Because they're the ones who control the food. So weight loss plans really need to be tailored to the household. You know, we need to you know, preemptively be asking, what are the barriers you think you're going to run into? Is it that you have multiple pets? Do you have um, a parent living with you with dementia that feeds the dog all day? So it's taking the time to really, you know, troubleshoot in the beginning. And also it's about making sure our owners are ready for it, you know, kind of bringing them along and as a partnership and, and more about, you know, do you want to talk about your dog's weight? You know, after you kind of acknowledge who's the problem, you kind of have to have them say, yeah, I'm on board. Um, so it's yes. hard to do an effective plan if they're like, I don't really care. And you're like, well, I don't think it's going to work. Um, so yeah, things like that. It's, you know, the partnership is important between the pet owner and the veterinarian. I've often heard veterinarians say that sometimes, especially maybe with, with pet owners that are, are overweight, that this is a very difficult conversation. Is that has that been your experience or, or how, how has that happened in your space? Well, you know, I think 
I think the best way to approach that is that, of course, as a veterinarian, if you have an overweight or obese patient, we do have a responsibility to acknowledge it and to educate the pet owner that that their pet is overweight. But you don't have to use terms that might feel uncomfortable in the room. You can always be like, hey, Fluffy did weigh seven pounds. Now Fluffy weighs 11 pounds. Fluffy, I think, was healthier at seven. So there's things you can say to acknowledge it. And then I think after you educate the owner that there is a problem with their pet's weight, then that's where I think it's nice to say, would you like to talk about ways we can get Fluffy back to a better weight? Or would you like to discuss a weight loss plan and ask that permission? And so that way, if the pet owner doesn't want to, you don't have to continue that conversation for long if you don't want to, but you need to address it, but be sensitive to it. But I find oftentimes pet owners who are overweight are struggling with their health in a lot of ways as well, especially with like joint pain and things. And they often actually want to do better for their pets. Some of my best clients have weight issues themselves um, and they want their pet to feel better. So I wouldn't be afraid to have the conversation, but be sensitive about it and ask permission to move forward with it. You know, I ran, once was involved with a research study where we had dogs losing weight, people losing weight, and dogs and people losing weight together. And, and of course, the most successful group as far as staying to the end was that that partner sort of somehow that partnership was of value uh, in, in bringing, bringing the successful weight loss to both. So it sometimes is kind of a like you said, it, it's that both end rather than either or in, in this in this fight, isn't it? Yeah. What do you think about nutrition? What what might you recommend? I think a lot of clients will be interested. Clients, that's what a lot of people are interested in. Uh, you know your recommendation for what what you would want in a in a in a beneficial aid in the management of obesity food. Yeah, I think it depends on what stage of a weight loss kind of plan you're looking at. Um, for patients that really need pretty significant calorie restriction, I do like the therapeutic weight loss diets because they're going to be formulated higher in protein, which helps with retention of muscle mass through a weight loss program. Um, they're also going to be fortified in our vitamins and minerals because um, oftentimes these patients are eating quite a bit less than what a typical dog food's formulated for. So that way we can avoid nutrient deficiencies during the can weight loss program. Can we talk about that in a minute? Because sure. I think a lot of people would say, well, why don't I just, uh, Fluffy lost the food they're eating now. They're eating too much. Why don't I just have her lose weight on that food and, and, and feed her a third of what maybe she'd want to eat on a normal? But I know she'll lose weight and, and you and I know she'll lose weight too. But, but why do you not recommend that? I, I think talking about that will be of value to people. Yeah, well, so I think about energy requirements of dogs and cats um, using kind of a base equation for what we call resting energy requirements. And then I put life stage factors onto that. You know, sure. how active are you? Are you losing weight? Things like that. So if you think about a typical dog food is designed for dogs that eat a life stage factor of about 1.6. Okay. Now, when we move so into weight loss, factor, isn't it? Yeah, one point six. Starting point. We should say each individual pet needs to move around that, even within that. But that's the starting point. Yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. So that's roughly where they're going to formulate for. 
And then for a weight loss program, though, I might have a patient on a life stage factor of one or maybe even eventually moving down to like 0.8 as they start to lose weight and plateau. So they may be eating half the amount of food that that over-the-counter typical dog food's designed for, which means they're getting half the calcium, half the phosphorus, you know, half of all those nutrients they need. And so that's where I start to say, if I'm going to be feeding a patient a life stage factor that is going to be pretty low, like a one or lower, they really need something therapeutic to avoid deficiencies. Now, if you have a dog where they can still lose weight eating something, a 1.3, 1.4 life stage factor, I don't have a big problem with using a typical dog food. For me, it's really about their metabolism. Mm -hmm. Those that have a slow metabolism that really need restriction, really need that therapeutic weight loss diet. So would you say then that you know, as nutritionists, we often scale all nutrients to energy because we think energy is a good predictor of how many grams everyone eat that day. So then that scaling needs to be shifted for that therapeutic food. Is that is that right? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. I mean, essentially, I like to think about nutrients on a calorie basis because dogs eat for calories, right? Um, so if they're just going to consume less calories, well, we need to bump up what's in it so they get all the nutrients. Let's talk a little bit about what the what the pet owner might perceive. Um, you know, with a with a dog, maybe let's start there because I think it runs to maybe a little easier solutions. What might that pet owner do? You know, with their pet that that would help lose weight. Yeah, so I mean, once we kind of figure out the calories, right? That's that's probably the most majority of it is you got to feed them the right amount. But, um, you know, some weight loss diets are helpful, too, because they do increase the fiber content. That protein helps with satiety as well. So those things help. But I'm a big fan of trying to find ways to enrich your pet's environment so they don't think about food. I kind of think about if you don't have a lot going on, then, yeah, you overeat, right? We all do that. If we're kind of bored and nothing's happening, we're like, well, I think I'm hungry. I'll go eat. Working, I'm sorry. I spoke over this problem from working from home, right? You think, oh, the refrigerator's right here. <laughs> Right, right. Um, so I'm a big fan of if your pet eats mostly dry kibble, um, they should never eat that out of a bowl, okay? That should be put into some kind of toy or puzzle, like make them work for it. And that's um, for dogs and cats. Exactly, exactly. Oh, um, yeah, my own dog, um, she probably hates this, but I have a, a two-story deck off my back near the kitchen so I take her dry food and I drop it off my deck two stories and it scatters on our patio. So it takes her a good 10 minutes to go down there and find every individual kibble that has spread through our patio. It's like so hunting, it's things like hunting, that. Hunting find. Yeah, exactly. So I think we can use food as an enrichment tool. Um, so I, I'm kind of like, shouldn't even use bowls. Um especially if you have dry kibble, that's a good option. And then other things to consider to help manage the house if you're getting a lot of begging behaviors and things like that is to actually try to remove yourself from the feeding process. Oh, that's so hard. I know, but you can use like automated feeders where it might, like you might preload something and then a timer goes off and your pet can go to that feeder and Eventually, they start to disassociate you from the meals, and they can go beg to the food god. 
And in place of the feeding, because that's bonding, right? Is that where you're yeah. going, Dr. Jewel? Yeah. Um, in place of that type of bond, play with them. So there was a study a few years ago that showed that pets actually, this was in dogs, but that the dogs actually bonded more closely with the pet owner that played with them than the pet owner that fed them. Wow. So we could, if we can kind of replace the feeding as the way we show love to our pets and replace that with petting and attention and playing and just, you know, spending the time with them, that's actually a better bonding. Oh, that's fascinating. I think that's very helpful too, because so many of us feel, you know, that wants to eat, they enjoy yeah. eating, it's something we do. Uh, so yeah, that's interesting. What about cats? Seems harder with cats. Well, it's it, cats are a little bit harder, primarily because their metabolism can get very slow. And also when our cats are in an indoor environment, they just, they barely move. So they just don't need much. Um, I think also our indoor cats tend to have a lot less musculature than they would if they were out. Um, so those things kind of fight against them to where it really doesn't take a whole lot of food to sustain a cat. It really doesn't. But I think some of these same principles apply in that look for ways to make it more enriching. Try to disassociate yourself from feeding. If they're bothering you at 5 a.m. looking for food, that's where an automatic feeder is great. Like let that feeder feed them at 5 a.m. so you don't have to get out of bed. Um, but that can be a good tool as well. And again, cats want some love and play and things as well. Lots of people talk about obesity in a pet, but they have multiple cats, especially with cats. They have multiple cats. They struggle knowing, you know, how to feed them, what to feed them. I mean, do you have any advice for that or what, what do you think? Yeah, I just published a study on this. Uh, as so if I, I plan, I um, please tell us what you think. You know, yeah. Um, so we found that using automated feeders that will provide separation of your pets. So like, you know, the, the one I used used collars. So every cat in the house had a collar and the feeder would open up for the approved animal. It would close for the unapproved animals. So using things like that, there's other feeders that are good that have microchips that will read your cat's microchip, but the same kind of deal will only open up for approved animals. That makes it so much easier because then you can have the thin cat that likes to graze all day long can have their feeder that they go to all the time, but the overweight cat can't access their food. Yeah. What a good solution. Kind of high priced, I think. Uh, how, how, uh, how does that work? Yeah, a wonderful so solution. Of, Start with that. Yeah, yeah, it is. And um, we did find in that study that the pet owners that were in our group with the feeders versus feeding from traditional bowls, um, the cats lost more weight. Owners were happier. It just went so much smoother for them. But yeah, these feeders, um, the two I'm most familiar with, they're going to run somewhere between about $150 to $250. Okay. Not, not so terrible, it's an investment. Right? Yeah. Not terrible, but if you do need like, two or three of them in the house, it can, it can add up. Um, but these are also helpful for disease management too. If you have like food allergies in your house and things like that, but you can also get, you know, there's other ways to separate, right? So if you have a thin cat that can jump higher than maybe the overweight cat, you can put their food on like the washer and dryer. And sometimes the overweight cat can't get up there. Um, you might be able to do some kind of um, Rubbermaid or, you know, kind of big plastic container that has a small hole that the thin cat can fit through to access food and the bigger cat can't. So there's some other creative ways you can kind of do that separation also. Sure. 
Oh, that's fascinating. Well, what do you think if, you know, if you have, if you were to advise one of your residents and they said, you know, I, I'm interested in this area of pet nutrition. I want to see, you know, advancement. I want to look at how nutrition can be improved. What, what if you look out, what, what might you suggest they be looking at? Oh, as far that's as a really... Oh, obesity. Say that's a very broad question. No, no, I, I'm um, still on obesity. Okay, still on obesity. Matt, maybe you know, we can I, have another conversation at another time about the broader question because there's a lot there. Yeah, isn't there? yeah, yeah. So, well, that's a lot to unpack. But in terms of obesity, I think it it really comes down to I think working with the pet owner to find something that is easy for them. Change as few things as you have to in their daily routine. Like we all know change is hard, right? And this is why weight loss is hard for humans is, you know, changing those routines, any habit change is hard. So try to make it as easy as you can. And it's not going to be a one size fits all, I think, for weight loss and obesity management. It really comes down to the individual house. So with that one size not fitting all, is that, I I have an opinion, maybe I'll just say that and ask you a response, that one, perhaps one food might not be the best food for all pets losing weight. You might you might have success, you know, in that cat food. Maybe you want a high fiber food, or maybe a a high protein food, or maybe even a, a food with ketogenic. What what do you think? Is there is there kind of a set within the pet for a particular food that will be most successful, or or, or how do you feel about it? Oh yeah, everything with dogs and cats is you know, never one size fits all, right? Um, so you do have to find, you know, some therapeutic diets might be too much fiber and our pets go into the bathroom at three in the morning and that's not ideal. Um, the pet may not like the flavors of a certain brand. So certainly you may have to try different things. Um, and so it, it's also texture. When you think about cats, especially, it's like you got to go with what they will eat um, in terms of whether it's dry or canned or shredded and all of those. So yeah, nothing is really ever a one size fits all because they have taste and texture preferences just like humans do, um, where they like certain things and other things they don't. What do you think about, is, is palatability a problem for obese pets or is it really more all these other things we've been talking about is... We we always wanted, you know, when I was doing nutritional design, we wanted the best tasting food, and and yet, what do you think was that a was that a incentive for some pets to overeat, or what? What are your ideas? Yeah, I mean, I do sometimes have a problem with it, right? Because it's like if you make it taste so good, especially I think cats are often fed ad libitum by their pet owner. And so if you do have these owners who just leave dry cat food out all the time and it is the most palatable thing that a pet food company can come up with, well, that's going to be hard to offset, right? Um, so I am a little bit, as an obesity researcher, I'm kind of like, well, I don't know if I need the dog to inhale the food as ravenously within 10 seconds as they can. If it takes them five minutes, I'm okay with that. So I think that is a little bit of a challenge, yeah. Yeah, and, it, and you've spoken about some of the ways to mitigate that, right? So you have these these puzzles or this method to have a drop in the, the pet food, which I'm sure not everyone can accomplish, right, but it works right. really well, so that there's there's this great tasting experience and yet some control of, of intake. And, and I'm guessing, at least my experience is in both dogs and cats, in the end, 
intake control is probably needed for optimal weight, especially if you look at that study you referenced where they were you know, they were hungry. I mean, most those pets were hungry uh, when they were living longer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially dogs typically need control. Of course, you know, there are some breeds who just kind of eat to live and they will barely eat what they need to survive. But majority of dog breeds, yeah, they, they're kind of designed to eat what they can as much as they can um, from kind of that ancestral type of um, food motivation there. And cats, you know, it's one of the things that's always fascinated me about cats. And I always say, I want to figure this out. I probably won't in my research time, but I would love to, of why you do have cats that some just self-regulate beautifully and will eat, you know, ad libitum and they, they always maintain a healthy weight. And then of course the others that can't handle it. And I don't know the difference between those two categories. And it's something that always fascinates me. Um, but we do see time and time again, that a risk factor for obesity is, free feeding, free choice, ad libitum feeding. A lot of people prefer to feed dry food and pets seem to really enjoy it. Um, you probably know this. I actually don't know this. Is, is food form a risk factor for obesity? Dry versus canned wet. Yeah, yeah, um, it, it can be. And I think part of that, that's a little more evidence for that in cats um, where dry food does tend to be a little bit higher risk factor than canned food. And I think part of it is just because it's so dry and concentrated in calories, it's just very easy from a volume perspective to eat too much. So it's like with us, I always kind of think about, you know, grapes versus raisins, right? Where raisins are smaller, less volume, less concentrated. It's way easier to eat 200 calories of raisins than 200 calories of grapes. Like you're going to be pretty full after that. So it's that that type of thing where dry food um, is a little easier for them to overeat on. So there's something for a, a recommendation and for people to think about. I, I know like my cat, uh, I once tried to, I thought wet food would be healthier and uh, she outweighed me, outweighed me, you know. <laughs> she, yeah. She yeah. wanted dry food, she got dry food. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they form those texture preferences very early in life, and it's hard to change yeah, it. They hold them, don't they? Well, yeah. Well, while we're still here and just looking at the obesity area and area of research, is there anything else you kind of thinking about that you'd like to bring out here? Have we covered all? Yeah, I mean, that's most of it. Just looking for the the best ways to make these plants easier. Um, that's the, That's the big goal. I think that was fascinating. I wonder if we could talk you know, another area of expertise and interest of yours that, that you mentioned was the home homemade foods and the, the, maybe the the foods uh, the the individual owner is creating for their pet. Is that something you're interested in? Yeah, I think most um, kind of board certified vet nutritionists that that see clinical cases. We all end up doing a lot of homemade diet formulations for disease management. And part of that is so that we can really customize. When we got a, a pet that has four different nutritionally responsive diseases that doesn't have a commercial diet really perfect for them, we can really just tailor it in exactly for what that pet needs. So it's a really the, the individualized uh, pet that's driving that desire. 
would you say to just a, a non-nutritionist sitting at home that thinks, you know, I, I eat for myself, I eat pretty well, I seem to meet all my nutritional requirements. I'd like to I'd like to make food for my pet and, and just have that experience. What would you tell them about about that decision? Yeah, you know, I would first be like, well, I'm not sure that we as people optimize our health with our nutrition for the most part, most of us. I'm sure if you designed my diet, I would eat better than I do, okay? <laughs> right, right. Even even myself, I know I have things like I'm, every time I go to the doctor, she's like, you need your vitamin D. I'm like, I know I'm deficient in vitamin D. So yeah, so I would say the first thing is I'm like, well, we are not optimal in the way that we eat. So we probably don't want to necessarily put that type of feeding pattern onto our pets in that if you do a, a commercial diet, we know they're going to get all the nutrients they need. Um, so I think it's incredibly difficult for a pet owner to design a complete and balanced food for their pet. Um, so I do not recommend winging it. Um, you know, and then I think it's hard to have good sources for pet owners to utilize to balance a homemade diet for their pets because there's not enough of us nutritionists to go around um, for us to see every single pet that wants a home or their owner wants a homemade diet. Um, I often do send people, there's a website called balanceit.com, um, and there they can go design recipes. They have to use the supplement that comes with the website, um, but it's a good resource for pet owners who just want to cook because they want to try it. It's fun. If they follow exactly what they do with that website, they're going to have a balanced recipe. So that's where I often recommend pet owners go for that first line. What do you think about you know, as you look at the pet foods, you've talked quite a bit about uh, changes with exercise and changes with, with intake associated with weight loss. As you look at, at the pet spectrum of foods out there, do you have as a nutritionist any sort of thoughts you could, you could say, I, I sort of look for these things, say, this is a food I might recommend. What what might you look for? Is that is that another broad area that we should we should leave? You? Well, I'll just say it's hard because even when I do like continuing education talks or I, I teach my students, I always tell them like I can't walk into a pet store and walk down the aisle and tell you that a pet food is a good pet food. Um, it's very difficult with the information that's provided on a label. Um, you really you can't really assess like the quality of the ingredients and things like that from an ingredient list. Sure. So I think it's a hard it's a really hard question to answer. And I think most nutritionists, we often end up having to rely on company reputations or if we know a company is working with one of our colleagues, I might feel better about that company, um, things like that. But it's it's a challenge to really kind of just know if something's a good quality food or not. Yeah, I think many people don't realize that the um, names we use to define the ingredients are fairly broad and so that you can get uh, a high quality or low quality, I don't know, low quality, but you can get a, a range of qualities associated with the same name. And so that certainly is, is troubling. Or I, don't, I don't think there's a solution, but it's something to think about. I wonder, one of the things I, I hope to talk to you about, I think we have a little time, we might just shift to that, is, you know, you've worked with a number of teams, you've worked, you've worked both as, as a sort of team member and team leader. I guess, 
independent kind of of your veterinary nutritionist status, what would you what would you look to for success if if someone wanted to work on your team? What would what would you be looking for, or, or just in general, what makes a successful group that that you could tell us about? Oh, you know, I think we always look for people who play well with others. Um, you know, it's I think you know just being kind is always kind of step one of things. But, you know, it's it's creativity is always helpful, I think, in this type of environment where we're trying to manage diseases of pets on an individual basis. And nutrition is hard. It's it's rarely black and white. It is often gray. And a lot of it's kind of almost a gut instinct for that individual pet of, well, that didn't work. I think I'll try this now. Um, so I think having that ability to think outside the box and be creative is a, is a really nice skill for a nutritionist to have. Um but, you know, looking for, you know, if people want to specialize as a nutritionist or veterinary nutritionist, you know, in terms of residents, you know, I'm, I'm usually looking for people who are, of course, hardworking, organized, have a passion for it, you know, those type of skill sets. Sure. Is it a good career? I mean, it's, you, you seem to like it. You sort of enjoy your work. But as you talk to students who are thinking eh, one way or the other, what do you tell them about being a nutritionist? I think it, we are on the cusp of being, of exploding, but we're just not quite there yet. But generally, nutritionists are going to fall into a couple or th- about three different job categories. Most of us currently work in industry, and most of my residents have eventually made their way into the pet food industry as an employee there. Um, you also have academics. Unfortunately, we don't have enough nutritionists in our veterinary schools. That's something that I think is woefully understaffed if I can get on a soapbox. No, I, I'm like, on that soapbox too. Yes. Yeah. Every every veterinarian needs to understand nutrition on their daily practice. And we have very few vet schools that employ nutritionists. So but academics is another place. And then we have clinical nutrition. And I think that's the area that is untapped where we have pet owners want nutrition. They value it. They want that for their pets because we're we're kind of understanding more about how nutrition is preventative and can aid with all kinds of health. Um, But we haven't jumped into specialty practices effectively. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that we are charging for our brains. I always say that, you know, if I walk into a specialty hospital, all I need is my computer. I don't need an MRI. I don't need a surgical suite. I don't have to have endoscopy. I just need a laptop. And so it's hard for us to charge enough with the overhead that often comes in specialty practice. So the demand is there from the pet owner. I think our profession still needs work to figure out how to effectively earn a living from that. But I think it's going to happen. I'm optimistic that that's going to be a big area of growth for us. Well, it's pretty exciting. I think nutrition is a very exciting area, of course. And and like you said, that that to come is probably as great or greater than what we've done. So it's it's got a lot of opportunity. Well, I sure have enjoyed speaking with you, and um, I hope we get back and, and delve sometime later into some of these other things we haven't had a chance to today, but I think we, we've had a good talk. I sure have enjoyed it. Well, thank you. I really appreciate you inviting me to come on and, and chat about nutrition. I love it. So Let's plan on doing it again. Sounds good.